We want to read the word of God this morning from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 27. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 27. (coughs) We're going to begin reading at verse 13. This is the chapter that details Paul's journey across the sea towards Rome. He's a prisoner. He is appealed on to Caesar. And he is being taken as a prisoner across the sea. And the events of this chapter particularly relate to the Adriatic Sea and the great storm that blew up on that that sea as they were travelling across. At verse 13, Acts chapter 27 and verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they have obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there rose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocliden. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Claudia, we had much work to come by the boat, which when we had taken up with a used helps undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, straked sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, and all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, You should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among us, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country, and sounded and found it twenty fathoms, and when they had gone a little further they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under colour as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried, and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. 
And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were all in the ship, two hundred, three score, and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore, into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea, and loosed the rudder bands, and hoist up the main sail to the wind, and made towards shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the fore part stuck fast, and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel <coughs> was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to the land, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Amen. We know the Lord will bless the public reading of his word today to all of our hearts for his name's sake. As if Paul had not enough trials and tribulations in life, there was added to his lot this dangerous journey across the Mediterranean and then the Adriatic Sea on his way to the city of Rome. As I said at the beginning of the reading, Paul is a prisoner. He is appealed to Caesar, and here he is being taken to Caesar. Now, from the chapter, we know that Paul had forewarning from the Lord that this was going to be a dangerous journey. And he sought to use his influence to cause them to delay for a period of time and to spend the winter in Crete and not to travel during the, the winter months. But they wouldn't listen. There was a great haste on the part of the Roman centurion and the soldiers, no doubt as well, on the part of the uh, captain of the ship, maybe even the owner of the ship had some part to play in it as well. But there is a desire to launch out anyway. Even though it was a time for storms, uh, there was this haste to get the prisoners to Rome and also to get the cargo to Rome as well because this is a freight ship really that Paul and the other prisoners are, are on. That was often the case in ancient times of travel that the freight and the passengers would go together. They might be separated a little bit today uh, but certainly in past times there would have been a far greater uh, mixing of, of the two. And there is a haste. And it's interesting to notice that the merchandise that's on the ship, the wheat that's on the ship, was the very last thing that they threw overboard. Look at verse 18 of the portion there. It says, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. Verse 19, And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. So because of the storm, they want to lighten the ship and, and cause her to rise up a little bit further in the waters because she was well laden with the, the cargo that is there. And because of the storm, they're throwing out everything, but they're not going to throw out the cargo. This is what they deem to be important. Look at verse 38. It's only when they get to the, the position where they know the ship's going to be lost. There's no possibility at all of getting this cargo to uh, the place, to port and to sell it. It says there in verse 38, When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. 
the wheat was the very last thing that they would cast out because this is really what is driving them. They want to get the wheat to, to market. They want to get their good price. If they, if they winter in, in Crete and the, the, the cargo doesn't arrive until after the, the winter months have gone by, well, the price of the wheat is going to go considerably, considerably down. And this is, this is what drives them on to not listen to Paul, even though he tells them this journey is going to be to our harm. It propels them out into the sea and out into this storm. And what a fierce storm it was. It buffets them for 14 days. And if you look at some of the expressions there for verse 20, for example, it says, When neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay in us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. This was no little storm. Uh, they talk of there's the possibility of us getting the tail end of that hurricane that's that's in the Caribbean at the moment and is it tomorrow or Tuesday it may be going to reach here we're only going to get the tail end of it but this this was a storm that lasted for 14 days and there was no appearance of the sun or the stars and they give up hope that they're going to be saved at all and it's at that very moment that we discover that Paul absents himself from among the company and he's found down in the, the lower parts of the, the ship, he's not like Jonah, he's not sleeping, he's not hiding in the midst of the storm. This man, Paul, is praying. He's seeking the face of the Lord. And after a long abstinence, it tells you there, verse 21, Paul comes back amongst them and he makes what seems to be a remarkable statement in verse 22. I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. I remember this storm has raged for 14 days. There, there's even this, the, the, the darkness has descended to some degree. There's, the, the clouds are, are so thick with rain that Paul's, the, the record there is there's no sun or stars seen for many days. And all hope is given up that they're going to survive. And here's Paul standing on the deck and he says, look, no one's life is going to be lost. The ship going to be lost, but everyone's life is going to be saved. And that's a remarkable statement in the circumstances. To stand on the deck of this ship in the midst of the storm and make this statement that he does. That there's not going to be a single life lost of all 276 passengers that are on this, this ship. And Paul, in verse 23, gives us the basis for that statement. And that brings us to these words that we want to dwell upon. For there stood by me this night the angel of God whose I am and whom I serve. That's why Paul is able to make this statement. He's not making it of his own accord. It's not his own thoughts. It's not wishful thinking. But the Lord has met with Paul and the Lord has told him this is how it's going to be. The Lord is able to overrule in the storm and, and save lives even in the midst of storm. And whatever uh, physical danger somebody might be in, the Lord is able to provide and safeguard that individual and even a group of individuals as well. But it's what this statement says about Christian service that I want us to particularly dwell upon uh, this morning. It's a remarkable statement that, that Paul would, would put it as he does. No, he could have said, there stood by me the angel of God. And that would have, that would have given authority to what he said, the angel of God. That's authority enough for making the statement that everyone's life is going to be preserved. But Paul here adds this, this other detail. Whose I am and, and whom I serve. And I trust that the Lord will bless these things to us as we, 
as we consider them. The first thing I want you to consider here is that the child of God is the peculiar possession of Jesus Christ. The peculiar possession of Jesus Christ. Paul says that he belongs to this individual that he identifies as the angel of God. He belongs to to him. He acknowledges that he's in the possession of someone else. Now, picture the scene again. He's, He's on this boat because he's a prisoner. He's in the custody of someone else. He's a prisoner on his way to Rome. He cannot do the things as, that he would please. He wanted to, to remain in Crete and tarry then in Crete and not go out onto the, the sea in the midst of the storm. But it wasn't his decision because he's in the custody of somebody else. But Paul even goes further than saying that, that he's in the custody of this individual that he identifies as the angel of God. He says, I'm the possession I'm the possession of this individual who's identified as the angel of God. I belong to him. He owns me. He owns all that I am, all that I have. Everything about me belongs to him. I'm in his his ownership. I'm sure there were those, the centurion and the, the Roman soldiers that maybe thought, Paul, you're under our authority here. You're in our custody. We're going to tell you what to do and what you're not going to do. And yet, Paul stands here and makes this statement. I belong to this individual who is the angel of God. And what a statement that is regarding uh, the child of God generally. Now the angel of God here is a title for Jesus Christ. The word angel means messenger. And Jesus Christ is most definitely identified in the scripture as the messenger of God. Go back to uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And in that verse, there's two messengers really identified, but there's a a lesser messenger who's John the Baptist, and then there's the supreme messenger of the covenant that is spoken of. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And that's a reference to John the Baptist. He was the one who had come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time. So he, in a sense, is a lesser messenger. And then it says, And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So there's this lesser messenger, John the Baptist, that is identified here in this verse. But then there's a, a one who's given a fuller title. There's the one who's addressed as the messenger of the covenant. Or we could put in there the angel of the covenant. Just to tie it in with... With the verse, because in the New Testament language, an angel and a messenger, it's the same word. So the the person that Paul is identifying here in Acts 27 and verse 23, that he says, I belong to this individual. I may be in the custody of these Roman soldiers, but I belong to this angel of God. He's identifying the angel of God to be his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the one to whom he belongs. And Paul is here confessing it and acknowledging it. Here's the man who did so much contrary to this person. And giving his testimony in some of the previous chapters here just to to Agrippa and to uh, Felix and Festus. He he acknowledges that. He did so much contrary to this name and now he's owning this name and he's saying this, this individual owns me and all that I am. What a remarkable statement that is but 
That bears testimony to the reality of redemption in the life of a child of God. If, if you and I are redeemed today, then we are the peculiar possession of Jesus Christ. That's part of redemption. That's, in fact, that's the whole idea in, in the thought of redemption itself. It's the, it's the buying back. It's the purchasing again of something that was once owned. And as we know, God created man, put him in the earth and owned him in that sense. And man rebelled and sinned. But God in his mercy has bought a people back to himself. He has redeemed that people. And in redeeming that people, they have become his, his possession. First Peter 2 and verse 9. There's a list here of, of descriptions that are given to the people of God by Peter. First Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. A peculiar people. That word peculiar means purchased. You're a purchased people. That's, that's why the, the child of God is peculiar in the world. I know that the word peculiar has, a, has a, a usage today that has the idea of oddness to it. I remember hearing there's, there's some church, little Baptist church, I think it is in England, they're called the Peculiar People Baptist Church. And uh, they wonder why nobody goes in. <laughs> Because it has the idea of oddness today. If, if you say, oh, I'm peculiar, I think you're, you're odd. But in, in the Bible, that word means purchased. When the Bible uses it, it means purchased. And Peter is saying to them, this, this list that he gives, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but you're a, a purchased people. You're not your own, you see. And if we, are, if we are the Lord's today, child of God, that's the reality of our lives. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And that's what Paul is here acknowledging that he has been he has been purchased by the Lord. First Corinthians six, it's a, a theme that he mentions here as well, writing to the church at Corinth. In First Corinthians six nineteen, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? And why is that the case? Because he goes on in verse 20 to say, for ye are bought with a price. You're not your own because you're bought with a price. And Christian, today we have been bought with a price. The highest price possible, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that flowed from his wounds at Calvary. You and I were purchased with that shed blood and we are not our own. We cannot claim any part of us as our own. There is, there is not any part of us today. If we, if we are the Lord, so we can say, that, that, well, this is my own. That, that there belongs to the Lord. Because Paul brings it all in there in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Because he goes on to say, therefore glorify God, God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And he brings in the whole, the whole person there. The Lord owns it all. And today we belong to him having been purchased by his precious blood and that ransom price that was paid for us. <coughs> and the mark, of, the mark of ownership is upon us. And it's interesting, if you're back there at uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 27, just go over a page or two to Romans 1 and 1 and notice there what Paul says. He opens that book to the Romans and he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and... The word for servant there is the, the word doulos. It means slave. Paul, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's just how far he, he understood this. 
when he describes himself here as belonging to the Lord, this angel of God, that he's the possession of the angel of God. That's as far as he goes. He says, I'm the bond slave. I'm the bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, slaves were marked or branded in, in ancient times. Somebody who had slaves would have put his mark upon them. And they belonged to him. And had Paul got the marks of, of Jesus Christ upon him, he, he says that in his epistles. He says, I bear the marks in my body of Jesus Christ. But Paul, Paul rejoiced in that. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed. He, he wasn't somehow trying to, to hide it. No, he, he openly confessed it. I bear in my body the marks. Just like the, the slave that is branded with the mark of whoever his master is. Paul says, I have got the marks in my body of the master that I serve. And Paul rejoices that he belongs to the Lord. Do we rejoice today that we belong to the Lord? Maybe I should go back a step there and ask the question, do you belong to the Lord today? Maybe we should start there. <coughs> Are you here today and you don't belong to the Lord? Are you here today and you're not saved? You have no saving interest in Jesus Christ. You have no experience of redemption in your soul. And you certainly wouldn't acknowledge the Lord owns you. Someone else has your heart. Someone else controls your mind and your will and your desires. You're, you do the bidding of someone else. You, you don't belong to the Lord. Is it possible that you're, you're here today and that's how it is with you? Older person, younger person? Do you say today, I'm the Lord? Can you, can you openly and willingly and with gladness in your heart make that confession today and say, I'm the Lord's and I rejoice in it? And even to the extent of saying, I'm prepared to bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I love him as a master. I rejoice in him. The, the Christian is the peculiar possession of Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to consider here is that ownership by Christ leads to service for Christ. That's the connection that Paul is making here in this phrase that we find in Acts 27-23. Whose I am and whom I serve. He connects the two together. They, they don't stand separate. They must always be found together. In fact, re really and truthfully, you can never separate the two. They always go together. If the one is true, then the second one also automatically follows on as well. If we belong to the Lord, if we are his possession... Then, Christian, it automatically follows on. We serve him. Whose I am and whom I serve. One necessitates the other. You, you cannot really separate the one from the other. If the Lord has taken ownership of us in redeeming us by his, his blood and bringing us unto himself, then, then today we're in his service. That's evident in, in Paul's life. What were those first words that, that Paul uttered on the Damascus road when the Lord saved him and, and brought him to an end of himself? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Those were among the very first words that, that Paul uttered when he came to the Lord. He, he asked, uh, who, who art thou, Lord? And the, the, the Saviour said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And it says... And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Right at his conversion. You know, service for Christ isn't something that, 
we start somewhere down the line after we're saved. Oh, weeks or months or years after we're saved. Then we get round to thinking about serving Christ. That's not how it is to be Christian. We, we start to serve the Lord the day we're saved. Now, our service for the Lord the day we're saved mightn't be and most likely won't be the service that we'll give to the Lord after many years of being saved. Because that it'll, it invariably will be different. But the point is that is the very moment we are saved, that's the very moment we enter into the service of Jesus Christ. <coughs> We're his, therefore we serve him. We serve him. That's how it was with, with Paul. Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, Paul had to be shown, and he had to be, had to be trained. The Lord took him three years out into the Arabian desert and taught him instructed him for what he was going to do he, he had to be prepared for what he would eventually do in the ministry that the Lord would have for him in, in later years but Paul testifies this point right at the very moment of his, his conversion Lord I'm in your service I'm in your service Paul, Paul knew how it was and so it is with, with each one of us we enter in the service of the Lord the moment that we were saved. There's no such thing, you know, as a, a Christian who's not serving the Lord. That's, a, that's an anomaly. That's a contradiction in terms. There, there can never be somebody who's a Christian but who's not serving the Lord. Well, I know sometimes we, we talk about full-time service and we, we understand by that somebody who, who goes into the work of God full-time. But every Christian is serving the Lord in some way. If you are where... You would have, be in the will of God. If wherever you are today, at home and, or in workplace or in college or school or whatever, if you are where you ought to be in the will of God, then you're serving the Lord in that place. There might be those the Lord calls to, to full-time service or whatever. If they obey the will of God and do what God would have them to do, well, then they're in the place of service. But every Christian's serving the Lord in some way or another. And... Our time is going on, and we really can't explore it too much. But it's turn over to Ephesians very quickly, because it, the latter part of Ephesians, Paul is here really applying the gospel. The first three chapters of Ephesians is him sending out the great truths of the gospel, and then verse four he begins, "I therefore," and there's a whole series of therefores and wherefores down through chapters 4, 5 and 6 of Ephesians because it all goes back. Here's the consequence of the gospel. If, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, here's the consequence. And without going too much into it, every area of life is covered in those three chapters of Ephesians. As we know, there's, there's home life, there's wives and husbands and children, there's work life. It talks about uh, masters and servants. Every area of life is covered. As a consequence of the gospel. But the point that, that I want you to notice here is. Look at, look at Ephesians 6. And verse, verse 5 and 6. It says. Servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling. And singleness of your heart is unto Christ. Now we might have an earthly employer. That we owe responsibilities and duties to. In our work or whatever. But even there, Paul says, even there, Christian, you're serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord. Look at chapter 6 and verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, 
doing the will of God from the heart. Now he's, he's talking to servants, slaves. He's talking to those that were slaves in somebody's service. And he says, that might be the case, but don't forget as well that even in a physical earthly sense you might be the slave of some master. Aye, and even be branded with his mark. You don't forget if you're a child of God that you're the servants of Christ. You're doing the will of God even in those circumstances. These, these two thoughts always have to go together. If we belong to the Lord, we're in the service of Christ. And if we are where we ought to be with regards to the will of God, then we're serving the Lord in that place. We are to serve the Lord in that place. Because <coughs> that's the will of God, God for us. And the great, the great motivation for doing that is redemption. This is this connection that, that Paul is making here in Acts 27, 23. It's redemption. What is the motivation to serve the Lord? It's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has loved our souls. Loved us unto death. Our souls are to be, be full of love for him and devotion to Christ. That we'll do anything for him. We'll go anywhere. All we want to do is serve Christ. All we want to do is please him. Because we love him. And you see if we, if we don't love Christ. And if our hearts are not right with Christ. Then there will be a problem with your service for Christ Christian. You'll always have to be cajoled. You'll always have to be pushed along. To do something for the Lord. But you see if, if your heart and my heart is right. No one will have to cajole us. No one will have to cajole you. No one will have to, to be exhorting you and, and pushing you along and prompting you and prodding you to do something for the Lord. You'll be wanting to do something for the Lord. You'll be looking out for opportunities to do something for the Lord. If, if your heart is right, if our hearts are overwhelmed with the love of God in Christ and the Lord has taken hold of us in this sense and there's a burning zeal in our souls for him, there'll never be any problem with serving the Lord. But you see, the lack of serving the Lord testifies today there's a heart problem. You know, if, if you're here today and you have no desire to serve the Lord and no, no yearning to do something for him, whatever it might be, wherever you are, in, in home life or work life or in the church, if there's no desire in your heart to serve the Lord and do something for the Lord, to me that indicates there's a heart problem. Is your heart right with the Lord? Is there a battle going on there in your affections today and in your heart? And you don't love Christ the way that you ought. And you don't delight in him the way you ought. And there's not that zeal in your soul for him that there ought to be. It's like any sickness or illness that somebody has. There's always symptoms. It manifests itself. The, the, the illness and the sickness might be hidden away in, in our body, but the symptoms come out. And by the symptoms you can detect there's, there's a problem there. And because of the particular symptoms that there are, you can say that the, the problem is, is that specifically. Well, if there's no desire to serve the Lord in our hearts, do something for him, whatever it might be. If there's no desire in your heart or my heart to do something for him, the Lord, and we're just putting in one day after another day, one week after another week, and we're not really focused on doing anything for God, surely, surely there has to at some stage, a conclusion be reached. There's something wrong with our hearts. There's something wrong with our affections for Christ. Because if we love Christ, 
then we're going to serve him. We're going to do something for him. Our, now our service might be different to somebody else. But we'll do something. We'll desire to do something. Whatever it is. It might, it might be the least thing. But we'll desire to do it. Because we're doing it unto Christ. We're doing it out of love for him. And devotion to him. And do we have that, that heart today? I challenge my own heart as much as I challenge your heart. Do we love Christ? And does that make us serve Christ? And I suppose we could turn it around and examine our service and say, well, do we serve Christ out of a love for Christ? Or is it because it's the thing that's expected of us? Oh, I'm expected to be there. I'm expected to do that thing. We can get down into that, that position, Christian. We end up doing something just as a drudgery. But all Christian service should be a, something we do with a love and a, a delight and a skip in our step. Because we love Christ. I'm doing it for Christ. I'm not doing it for the church. I'm not doing it for the office bearers or anybody else. I'm doing it for Jesus Christ. And that's what ought to motivate our hearts and our lives. One final thing I want you to consider here. And that is that this service for Christ entails an interest in souls. An interest in souls. Because in the context of this statement that Paul makes here. He gives us an illustration of what service for Christ entails. It's not service for service sake. It's not service, as I say, to, to please men. It's service that has got an interest in the well-being of needy souls. Of needy souls. It was said of John Wesley that he was out of breath running after souls. We might disagree with John Wesley's theology, but oh, for a passion like that. To be out of breath running after souls. To have a concern and a burden for souls. Because that's what is on the mind and heart of Paul. That's why he's absent here praying. He's praying for souls. As I say, it's not like Jonah. He's not down sleeping in the, in the boat and running from God. He's praying. And he's praying for souls. He's praying for deliverance from what seems to be certain death. Because as it tells us there in verse 20 of Acts 27, they've given up hope that they'll be saved. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Well, here's a man, even though in those circumstances, where that, that's a common thought that's running through everybody. They've all given up hope that anybody could be saved. They're thinking, we're going to go down to a watery grave. But there's one man who believes in prayer. There's one man who believes. He knows how to change things. And he has got a concern for their souls. Isn't it interesting if you go down there to verse 37 where it tells you the number of individuals that were on this boat. It says, and we, we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. More than just people or persons. Or any other description that you could collectively give to them all. The Holy Spirit inspires the author here to write that word souls. 276 souls. That's what Paul is concerned with. He's not concerned with the wheat and the cargo that's in the ship that they want to get to the market and to sell for a good price. He's interested in their souls. That's what he's praying about. 
And that's what he's concerned about. And after a long abstinence, it tells you there in verse 21, he stands on the, the deck of this ship and he says, Now fear not. God has told me that everyone is going to survive. Every soul, every soul is going to be preserved. It's an interest in souls. And whatever service we might do for the Lord, Christian, that, that's, that's what lies at its heart. It's service unto Christ, but it's service with an interest in souls. Now, it might be something practical you do. But still, that, that's, the, that's the focus of it. It's souls. It's the well-being of souls that is to occupy our thoughts. The saving of souls. Isn't it remarkable here that it tells you that they all were safe? Paul makes that statement, but when you get down to the end of the chapter and the very last little phrase there of last sentence of this chapter it says and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land they all escaped every one of them there wasn't one wasn't one that was missing because Paul has has prayed God has heard his prayer God has answered him God has given him this assurance and they all get safe to shore it's an interest in souls there's encouragement there Christian, you might be praying for some soul, some family member, some loved one. You might have prayed for them for a long time. You might think, is there any hope? Is there any hope? There is. Here's a situation where Paul was praying and it tells us that, that they'd, they'd given up hope that anyone would live. And yet Paul prays even in circumstances like that and God intervenes. God can intervene today even in situations where it seems they're, they're beyond hope. You might th think somebody is so hard, someone is so indifferent. They've heard the gospel so many times. They've sat under the preaching and it makes, seems to make no impression on them. Do you give up? Or do you take heart from somebody like Paul here and say, even where it seems to be hopeless, I can pray on because God can intervene and change things around. God is able. But may the Lord give us an interest in souls. And a concern about their, their well-being. Paul isn't so much concerned about, him, about himself. He's a prisoner. There's a whole lot of things that would rightly occupy his, his thinking. And he, Paul was just an ordinary man. He wasn't some kind of a superman that, that faced these things with, with not a, a flinch. That's not the case. No. It tells you there in the next chapter, Acts 28, that when they, they finally did get to, to Rome and uh, the Christians came out from Rome to meet Paul, it says Paul, was, Paul took heart. You know, Paul wasn't some kind of a, a man that lived in another plane to us. He was just an ordinary man. He was fierce. So there, there was many things that could have occupied his, his thinking. At that time when he was on the way on that boat to, to stand before Caesar. But the preeminent thing is souls. The well-being of souls. These are 276 souls that are perishing. Are we concerned about souls? This week that's passed. Let me, let me challenge you in that way. This week that's passed, Christian, have you, 
Have you thought about anybody's soul? Have you done anything about anybody's soul? You know, if we are the Lord's, it comes down to just practical things. Doing something out of a love for somebody's soul and a desire to to see them one for Christ. Speak a word. Show some kindness to somebody because you desire to win their soul for Christ. Oh, may the Lord give us such an interest in souls. Whose I am and whom I serve. May the Lord bless his word today to our hearts.